Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Murder in the Black. I'm your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And we are back for a, another episode. I wanted to kind of run through some of your responses from last week's episode. And congratulations, y'all are subscribing. We hit past 10 subscribers. <laughs> so I love y'all for that. Like, y'all, I knew if I was going to throw that giveaway, a little incentive always gets the job done. So thank y'all for that. We'll be holding a giveaway next week. So be on the lookout for that. I think I will obviously announce it on the podcast, but um, I will put something on our Instagram as well to remind you guys um, about it. So thank you for that. I'm going to go right into our question for last week because y'all gave me some responses that had me rolling. Okay. <laughs> So, I posted all of them, too, so I hope y'all didn't feel like, oh, <laughs> why she put me all blast? I posted all of them. I had that option. So, the question that I asked was, what is your fondest memory from college? So, one person said, crossing into a sorority while I still have all of my college day ones, joining open up an entirely new avenue for meeting amazing women who would later pray for me, cheer for me, and inspire me. I love that. Yeah, Tiara, that's what's up, girl. Next person said, when I was going to school in Denton, I went to TWU and became a sugar baby. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> <laughs> okay, girl, listen, I'm not mad at I you. I was so close until he died. <laughs> I think I forgot. Girl, that did part. you come up on the wheel though? Like, did you get something from the estate? I need to know. I, I don't even care, girl. Because <laughs> she was like, college was lit, girl. You know what? And I feel you on that, Chantel. Because honestly, I really wish that I would have probably did something like that. <laughs> really? Girl, you don't have sex with these men. You get cashed out. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> People, they, they get that twisted. They get that twisted. Okay, next person said, not a memory, but hey, Skiggy fam. I had no idea. I'm class of 2016. Hey, 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 girl. What's up? Well, boy, I don't, I, don't, I feel like you a girl though. Because like, y'all be coming through. Next person said, getting chased by skunks. Girl, oh my gosh. Please elaborate fun, on girl. that story if you can. Drop it in the DM. Because that that's got to be a nightmare for me, for sure. Yeah. Probably. I feel like I have dreamed of that. Yeah, probably. So, our question in the poll was, do you think Shanterica killed Tina in self-defense? 89% of you said no. And 11% of you said yes. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. Because I guess, you know, I think when you're dealing with somebody who's killed somebody, you're only dealing with one side of the story. 
Well, is it probable? I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I think I see where mm-hmm. 89% can say that they think that she did. I mean, just because of the history, right? But um, I'm with that 11%. You thought she was doing it in self self defense? No, I thought she wasn't doing it in self defense. Oh, no, did I get the eighty nine percent? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm with the eighty nine percent. I was very confused there for oh, a second. I apologize. Oh I apologize. my goodness. Yeah, I'm super confused, but I mean, we got to be on the same page at least a little bit because we know she killed that girl. Yeah, oh, well, we know she did it. We just don't know if she did it in self defense. Jeesh. All right, so let's go ahead and get right into it. So grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening, but either way, let's get into it. So, Steph, you, ha- are you do you have a title for this case? I don't think we've done that in the last couple times. Um, We haven't done it. Uh, Yeah, we haven't done it for the past two episodes. Um, I would say my case is The Unforgotten. The is that a word? I feel like I'm saying that. Is that the right term? Yes. Okay. Got to make sure because I be judging people who don't do it right. Listen, I do too. So if we get it wrong, you guys judge I'm, us. Judge us. Judgment. Just know that I'm coming for myself too. All at the same time. <laughs> same. Right. So this case is definitely. I think that's a perfect title for it, and it starts with. Well, it. Let me not say it starts with. It has several victims. And so I'm going to start with our first victim, Steph. And I want you to just chime in. We're going to kind of do things a little different with this case because it is so robust. So our first victim, her name was Carol Denise Spinks. And it's really interesting. This case starts on April 25th, 1971. A mother of four girls. So where are they at, though? They are in Washington, D.C. Oh my God, DC! I, I think when you that... think when you think of DC, I think of a DC sniper. I mean, and other things, right? Amongst other things, but I'm talking about true crime. No, absolutely. Know? Think of the DC sniper, which we have to cover that case one day, Steph. But this case takes place in DC. So April 25th, 1971. Mother of four. She has a set of twins and oh, cool. two older girls. Now, one of the older older daughters doesn't live there. And so it's just three of the girls that are living there. And mom has to go to work. And so mom gives a classic black mom threat. Stay in this house. Don't come out unless I say it's okay to come out. Like, even if Jesus Christ knocked on this door, you don't answer it unless I tell you. you I think I got a full visual when, when the mother said... Or when the sister recounted what the mother said, I don't care if Jesus Christ opens, knocks at this door. Right. Be like, Mama, but it says but in the Bible, Jesus. if a man knock, I mean, I'm just, and the door shall be answered. But absolutely, it just to me, it just brought back a lot. Not that my mom ever used that specific language, but I just remember in that that thread of you better not do X Y Z, right? Mm-hmm. And so. She leaves, goes to work. The girls are inside there playing, and then of course knock on the door and it's their older sister that doesn't live in the house the older sister's trying to come in and they're like no uh not come in the older sister wants one of them to go to the store for her and they're like no mom said we can't go mom said we gotta stay in the house and so they close the door they go back to playing but older sister is she's just banging on the door she's knocking she's insistent that they you know one of them goes to the store so carol denise spinks says okay Fine, I'll go to the store. I'm going to run to the store for her. It'll just be a few minutes. It's not far from where they live. Mm -hmm. It's like around the block. And so she 
it, as a matter of fact, it's like, I think I want to say it was like a half mile from where they lived. So she, you know, gets the money from her sister and heads to the grocery store. And guess who she sees along the way? Her mama. Her mama. Because when you're doing dirt and you know you're not supposed to be doing dirt, you get caught most of the time. And so mom's like, didn't I tell you to keep your butt in this house? And so when you get home and I get home, I'm going to wear your butt out. And so mom watches, you know, Carol walk into the store. Because Carol tells her, well, I'm out here. I'm running an errand for my, you know, for, for you know, my sister. I'm going right back. And mom's like, okay. But you, this is what's going down. And so mom watch, watches Carol go into the store. Now, now, I don't know if I said this. This is one of the twins. So I don't know if I, I said this. So Carol has a twin named Carolyn. So it's Carolyn and Carol. And Carol goes into the store Mom walks and keeps going her way. Well, 45 minutes later, Carolyn, the other twin, and the older sister that stayed home is looking around for their sister like she's still not here. Mm -hmm. And they're very concerned. And so, Steph, what happens after that? Well, obviously she goes back home and get that whipping she was supposed to have. No, that's not. So, because... They're trying to figure out the older sister that's at home. Like, I need to go find out, did she go back to my sister's place? So, so she goes over to that apartment. And she's like, hey, is Carol show back up here? And they have a, a real kind of cute name for her, like Bebe. And it's like, did Bebe come back here? And they're like, no, nah, we haven't seen her. We, we thought she was, she was, you know, was still at the store. No, nah, she's not at the store. So she goes to the store. The, the, the clerk at the store says, hey, she left not too long ago. And so she comes back home and she's wait she has nothing else to do at this point cuz she has to wait for her mom, right? Because the rules are still the rules. Don't leave the house. Now she's already left the house. Carol has already left the house, but Carol's still not home and so they're trying to figure it out but they can't. So they just wait for mom to get there. As soon as mom gets there, they realize uh, mom realizes that Carol has not shown up. She's still not there after she saw her at the store. And she knows it shouldn't take that long to go into the store, get get whatever items she needed to get, and then get back to the, to the house. So Carol calls the police. Not Carol. I'm sorry. Carol's mom. Carol's mom calls the police because she, at this point, is completely worried about her daughter. And she can she just knows in her spirit that something is off, something is wrong. And the police, they're like, they kind of just write it off. Like, oh, she ran away. Yeah, she just, she, she must have just ran away from home. Give it a couple, couple days, couple, well, a couple hours. She'll be back. But Carol's mom knew that's not the situation here. She just knew in her gut that something was off. And Carol's sister, Carolyn, she also knew. And they call that, Steph, what do they call that? Like twin, lepe, twin telepathy. Telepathy. And so she, the twin, Carolyn, she also knew that something was off. They rally up a search party of the neighborhood to try to find where Carol is, you know. And so they, you know, begin searching, and they are completely unsuccessful, and it's dark outside. And so they call it a night. They go home, and they're just waiting to figure out where Carol is. And she doesn't turn up for, 
I believe it was six days. Steph, is that right? Six days. It takes her six days and they find, not six days to come home, but it takes six days for the answers to be given to this family. And they find her body at 2.46 in the afternoon, like right behind a, a hospital. Right, right. And mm-hmm. she was obviously deceased. And and the police have to come to tell Carol's mother and her twin and her older sister that she's no longer alive. And what they discovered in the autopsy was that she had food that had yet to be digested. So this showed them that she did not immediately die upon being taken. So she was taken on, you know, the the afternoon of her walking home from 7-Eleven. But she lived for several days after that. And she was raped, sodomized, strangled, yeah, and she, left dead. And left and left dead. So, so the the two things that you want to remember is that she was physically and sexually assaulted. Um, she was dressed, but missing a shoe. And um, the other thing that that is highlighted, which we're gonna put the show that we watched this on because it's so important that you guys and go and watch this because this has the ability of being like a two-part like episode for us but i wanted to make sure that we gave you like the um the highlights of each victim kind of highlighting the victim um but this does this documentary that we watched um from people was so good and, and filled with a lot of details. So I wanted to direct your attention back to that documentary if you just kind of want to fill in more blanks for yourself, get a well-rounded idea of all of the intricacies of this case. But in Carol's case, what I want to highlight to you as well is that she was found on this grassy embankment, and yes, it was behind this hospital, but it was on the northbound lanes of I-295, okay? So this is important as we move on, right? The other thing is that they talk to eyewitnesses who remember seeing Carol um, walking to the store, and they saw her walking back from the store. Actually, a mother and her daughter were walking back at the same time, and they said that they I, they saw a, a girl who looked just like Carol, her age, her height, her description, walking back to back from the store to her home or to her apartment complex, and she had groceries in hand. So she actually purchased the things that she needed. So police figured okay one she got everything that she needed so she actually left the 7-eleven store she checked out somebody was able to lure her into the car or more than likely it was a person that she knew so her family was really trying to just adjust to the 
news of, you know, for Carolyn, her twin is gone for their older sisters. They're, you know, you can imagine their older sister, Carlo, who actually sent her out to get the food is riddled with guilt that she probably just didn't go herself. And, you know, it changed the dynamic of their family forever. Older sister Carlo, who actually sent her out to get the food, is riddled with guilt that she probably just didn't go herself. And, you know, it changed the dynamic of their family forever. Her life was snatched away at just 13 years old. And police are kind of rubbing their hands together, wringing their hands together, trying to figure out what happened here. And you may be saying to yourself, like, golly, why didn't the police initially go out and look for her? Well, and just got lost from all the other many things that were just happening in the district at the time. I mean, they had called an all hands on deck to the task force. All of law enforcement had to come in and help with all the things that were happening in the district. Yeah. And so, you know, so this happened in southeast D.C., um, to be specific. But, you know, it, you know, I think about it in terms of my city, right, because that's easier to, to think about. And so I want you to imagine for yourself your particular city that you live in and imagine you just have a lot of things going on in your city where they're going to call everybody from the suburban areas. They're going to call all the police officers. <laughs> they're going to get them all in line to help to not figure out this crime, but to handle the city or else it'll go in chaos. Right. So, you know, they really hated that they didn't solve their sister's case, but not just for that closure for themselves to know exactly who killed their sister and daughter, but really because of the community, right? Like when somebody's not caught, the likelihood of them reoffending is high. And one thing that her sister said, her older sister said, was we just knew that it was going to happen again. And that's exactly what happened. Sadly, on July 8th, 1971, Darlena Denise Johnson, who was 16 years old, was around, she was from Congress Heights, which is around the Southeast area, not too far away from where Carol Denise Spinks was abducted. Well, Denise found herself, you know, en route to go to her summer job at Oxen Hill Recreation Center. And one witness reported to see her as she was walking and an old black car drove up to her and it was an African-American male in the car. And then shortly after, that's the last time they see her. And very similar to Carol's story, just 11 short days later, her body was located only 15 feet away from where Carol's body was found. So he goes, so there's potential that this could be the same person, right? Because he goes to the same place that Carol's body was found. Yeah, I mean, that's what police start to coordinate, you know, they start to look at these cases, but they don't immediately do that, right? Like, that's not something they immediately do. This 
falls into like they they see okay this is similar but they don't immediately make that connection so she was found right where i told you guys on i-295 and if she was found just 15 feet away from spinks that means she was found close to that hospital so nobody immediately sadly came and saw her corpse it took like nearly a week um, for them, somebody to come and identify her. And we don't really know why, but that's what ultimately happened. Um, her body was dressed, but without her shoes. Um, and she was just, she was so far into decomposition that when she went to go do a autopsy examination, they couldn't even figure out her cause of death. It was just like, she was no. too far into decomposition, so they couldn't say for sure how she died. And I think that also lended to why the police didn't make that automatic con- connection between Carol and Darlena's death. And now, Steph, were they able to determine whether she was sexually assaulted? They did say that she was sexually assaulted. Um, but, you know, they said they found evidence of strangulation, but honestly, they couldn't say, okay, that's what, that's what killed Caused her, for her sure. Right. Yeah. So, you know, once again, like I said, you know, the police are playing catch up, right? And even though these murders happen within the same year, they happen, you know, months apart. One's in the spring, early spring, and the other's in late summer. So... Darlena's body was out there in the heat. And you just think about that. I remember a case that we covered on TikTok. Haven't covered this case here, surprisingly. Lorenzo uh, was a basketball player, and he was in Memphis, Tennessee heat in the summer. And when they got his body, he was like 42 pounds. So, like, decomposition in the heat is only going to just exacerbate the process. It's just going to go faster. Um, And that's what happened ultimately in Darlena's case. As I said before, they were unable to make that connection, at least initially. And because of that, I think it cost them. It actually cost investigators because very soon after, this guy strikes again. And shortly after, because on July 27, 1971, 10-year-old Brenda, Brenda Crockett, now, she was from the northwest side. If you remember, I said both Carol and Darlena were from the southeast side. So this time, the killer is going into another neighborhood. Her mom actually sent her to the store, right? Sounds similar. Sent her to the store. They were preparing to kind of like sit down and have a night of watching movies and just having fun together. And she actually had an older sister as well. Or no, she had a younger sister. Her sister was younger. So her mother sends her to the store. And this is a part of the culture back then. If you're saying to yourself, I would never send my child to the store in 2023. Like, you know, and not that's alone your child, my child. Right? Like your 10-year-old child, right? Yeah, your 10-year-old child, 7-year-old child. Like, you're just like, I would never do that. But I think it's important to understand the context of the historical. This has historical significance because it speaks to the social context that was happening during this this time. And, you know, we talk a lot here on Murder of the Black about, you know, black culture and 
the you know the nuances that we do but this is a larger picture because during the 70s 50s and even 60s it was it was common to leave your doors unlocked it was common to leave your car door unlocked to send your seven-year-old kid or 10-year-old kid to the store because it was different or I guess you could argue was it (laughs) right but that was the culture of the time. So I just want you guys to keep that in mind as you're listening to this story. So about two two hours later, around 9.20 p.m., she hasn't returned home, and they're trying to figure out, where is she? So actually, Brenda's mother leaves and goes down to the neighborhood store to see if she can find her. So Brenda's younger sister who was seven years old at the time was left there with her stepfather the phone rings and her seven-year-old sister answers it brenda was on the phone brenda said you know i'm i'm here i'm with this white man he picked me up and i'm gonna head home in a cab now imagine your seven-year-old self knowing that your sister's not here Right? Like, you're, you can't even really begin to, like, process all of this, all of these things. Or let alone, like, you need somebody to help you kind of process and filter through. Because it's like, why are you here? And I don't really understand. And why are you crying? So, her younger sister told her that, you know, what, you know, kind of, what are you talking about? But then Brenda hangs up the phone abruptly. And the stepfather comes over to her because she's obviously, you know, disturbed. And shortly after, the phone rings again. And it's Brenda again. But this time, she asks, did her mom see her? She was like, did mom see me? Once again, the seven-year-old is confused. So the stepfather, because I was waiting for the stepfather. If you don't grab that phone, stepfather. So he grabs the phone. And he's like, "Where, where are you? And she says, well, did mom see me? And and he says, mom is out looking for you right now. Where are you? And she tells him, I'm in Virginia, and I'm going to come back home. And she abruptly hangs up again. And she just says bye and hangs up. So at this point, you know, they are really confused. Of course, they call the police. And we're in the 70s, y'all, like, tracking a phone that type of technology did not exist they couldn't you know they told the police about it and of course they were given instructions to how they should handle the next phone call if it came again but you know they didn't really have anything to to help to track down whoever it was and then they were also just trying to put together did her mom see her which kind of lend it to them believing that maybe when Brenda's mother went down to the the neighborhood store, maybe they saw her. And so he felt like, you know, he was trying to cover his tracks. Whoever this was, he was trying. He let Brenda call the house to throw them off of their trail. So authorities, you know, just concluded that this this is what happened. It was really the killer who bribed her into making these phone calls. And around 5.50 a.m. the very next day, a hitchhiker discovered Brenda's shoeless body. 
in a location that was right off of Route 50 near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway in Prince George County, Maryland. And she also had been raped, strangled, and she had a scarf that was knotted around her neck. And I'm sorry if that is just like, that's a lot. Whenever we talk about um, child killings here on Murder in the Black, I, I like to tell you, which I will at the top of this episode, let you know that, you know, it gets vulgar. And I, I would be doing this this episode a disservice if I didn't include some of those details because it's so imperative that we find out who committed these murders. So at this time, police, because Darlena and Brenda's murders happened very close in time span, right? Darlena's murder happened on July 8th. Brenda's murder happened on July 27th. Police started to put these pieces together, right? And then they also went back and started to evaluate Carol Denise Spinks' murder. And this is when they realized we have... We have a serial killer on our hand, possibly. And everybody in the community is hearing about this. And they don't understand fully why investigators aren't, you know, they haven't caught who this is. Are these girls important? You know, that begins to be the narrative throughout the community in Southeast and Northwest D.C. area. Now, on October 1st, 1971, Nino Misha Yates, who was 12 years old, was walking home around 7 p.m. from a Safeway store in Northeast D.C. area when she was kidnapped, raped, and strangled. And her body was found within three hours of her abduction. And don't worry, because we're going to go back over this and talk about the similarities and how it seems that what took him six to 11 days started to take him a lot less time um, to get rid of the, the victim, you know, and to discard of their bodies, at least so that police could find them. So her body was found within three hours of her abduction and she was found just off the shoulder of the Pennsylvania Avenue in Prince George County, Maryland. Just like the other cases, her shoes were missing. She had unidentified green fibers found on her clothing. And a witness said that they saw her getting into a blue Volkswagen. They investigated that, but that pretty much got them nowhere. And it was at this time that the moniker or the phrase, catchphrase, of the serial killer because at this point they have pieced everything together. All of these cases are connected. And the Daily News wrote an article describing the murders and they called the killer the Freeway Phantom. I don't know about you guys. I've watched a lot of true crimes about, you know, uh, what was it, the Green? The Green River Killer. killer. Mm Mm-hmm. And they don't like when you give them, sometimes they don't like when you give them these, these names, right? They, they don't like it. And then sometimes they love and it. And sometimes they love it. I mean, right. you know, deranged has many levels. Mm-hmm. 
And for the Freeway Phantom Killer, this was a trigger for him. Once they labeled him as the Freeway Phantom Killer. And I know I feel like I just keep saying, and here's the next victim. But we got to talk about it, right? It gets messy, but we have to talk about it. Because on November 15th, 1971, Brenda Woodard was having dinner with a high school classmate. She's 18 years old. She was from Baltimore. And her parents, she was young, right? She was young and she was in love with this new guy, right? And this was like her first time dating. Her parents said, you can go out with him, you know, which is this high school classmate I'm talking about. You can go out with him, but you got to be back home by 10. So she did what she was told. She had dinner, you know, with this guy and boarded the city bus. Around 11.30 p.m., she was scheduled to return back home. Like, they expected her to be back home by then, like, at the latest, 11.30. But she never showed up. And just six hours later, police discovered her body. Now, this time... She was not. Yeah, they found it early. Oh, well, they found it very early. But the same thing was true for Nino Misha Yates. They found her body in just three hours, which we can we're going we're going to get into the progression of what I feel the murderer had after committing several murders. But we'll get into that. But they found her body six hours later. And not only has she been strangled. But she was stabbed, right? Now, this is new. She had been stabbed multiple times. And she was found in a grassy area near the Prince George County Hospital. This time, this interstate or route was, it was Route 202. And it was right, I feel like we we didn't do Route 202. But it was near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, which there was another route that was near the Baltimore. Baltimore Washington Parkway unlike all the other victims though she was still wearing her shoes and she had a velvet coat placed over her chest and that that covered her body that covered yeah well not covered it completely just covered her chest you know like a like how you would pull up a blanket that's how it was on her body I mean, I don't know how long the coat is, so I guess it could have covered it, right? Um, But as they were investigating the crime scene, collecting all the evidence, they found in the pocket of this velvet coat this note. This is a tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit, the others, when you catch me, if you can, Freeway Phantom. And we're going to include, I'm going to screenshot the picture of this note because the way that it was spelled, like he put, you know, it was very reminiscent of, you know how they would tear out those newspaper clippings and put them into notes to send to the uh, police it's very reminiscent of that because they use you know a mix of capital letters um and you know just when you shouldn't have them placed in a sentence so 
they they send these handwriting samples off to the FBI. And I've already told you guys, it's the 70s. You don't get things back quick. <laughs> that takes time. So they sent a handwriting sample off to the FBI. And they also took some handwriting samples from Brenda's school notebook. And what they find out is that Brenda actually wrote this letter. It was not written by the Freeway Phantom. And what they conclude by this evidence and discovering that she did indeed write this letter, that her writing, based on the writing sample, she wasn't stressed. Because you you got to know, and MD, you tell me if you knew this, you probably did. But when you're stressed, it's seen in your writing. Yeah, I, I do know that. And so they, they, because the FBI had all these tools and they were able to see how she wrote, you know, during different times, they were able to evaluate that she actually was not stressed when she was writing this, which, you know, that's just, that's just a little odd. So it gave them a preview into who the murderer could be. And they felt that more than likely she knew her killer. She knew who kidnapped her. And on some level, she felt comfortable enough to write this letter. So they're still on the hunt, still trying to figure out what happened. And in 1972, the Phantom's final victim was struck. On September 5th of 1972, a 17-year-old by the name of Diane Denise Williams, who attended Bayou High School. She was 17 years old and Williams was cooking dinner for her family. And then she went and visited a classmate's house. She also was boarding a bus and that bus was supposed to be at her home at 1120 p.m. She never came home. And just like Brenda, a few hours later, police found her body. And she was found alongside of the I-295 interstate, just south of the district line. She was strangled and sexually assaulted as the other victims. She was missing her shoes. And although, I, so let me correct myself, she was not sexually assaulted, but they did find traces of semen in her underwear. And they thought And the they semen, did not belong to the guy that she was seeing. Well, they thought that the semen belonged to her boyfriend who they were they thought she was visiting or may have seen that day. But the boyfriend, you know, he claimed that they did not have any kind of sexual intercourse. And they were able to exclude him because right. he got his DNA. <laughs> right. So, you know. So it wasn't his semen. But they did find semen in her body. So those are the victims, the six victims of the Freeway Phantom Killer. So before we get into the investigation, I just want to remind you of the breakdown of these cases because a lot of them have a lot of similarities. So Carol Denise Spinks, she was going to the store to go get something for her sister and she never returned. It took 
them about six days to find her body. And we know that she was still alive for some of that time because she still had food on her stomach. Going right into Darlena Denise Johnson, who was found in the summer of 71 in July. Now, she was different because she was a little older. She was 16 years old. But it took them 11 days later to find her body. And in both Carol and Darlena's situation, they, you know, they were seen by eyewitnesses who saw them either going to their destination or heading back from their destination. And in each situation, the witnesses were able to recall a car and an African-American man. These are all important. In Brenda Crockett's situation, very much like Carol Spinks, she was going to the store. But hers is the one that is different because the killer had her call her parents. None of the other cases did that. But we also find that a couple of days later, the very next day, <laughs> I said a couple of days, the very next day that she's missing on July 28th of 1971, they find her. Right. So the killer is getting more emboldened and brazen. It's not taking him as long to kill his victims. The next one is 12 year old Nino Misha, who was walking home from seeing one of her friends when she's kidnapped. And her case is different because she was actually she was actually found with these green fibers. All of the things that I'm revisiting, you, you know, I want you guys to just like tuck it under your hat, remember it. And Brenda and Diane were the last two victims, and both of them were on, they were boarding a bus, okay? They were both boarding a bus, and um, he, left a, he left a note. So he, I feel like, and MD, you can chime in before we just like dive head first into the case. But I feel like through going over this with you guys and then, you know, watching the documentary that we watched, I just feel like this guy got bold. He got bold because it took, he wasn't waiting days to kill them. He was waiting mere hours, maybe even 24. And then he became just even more brazen when he left this note, right? with Brenda. And so I just feel like, you know, you're able to see this sadly, you're able to see this, the makings of a murderer through, I mean, he had murdered Carol, but like how he got so bold with the murders that he was committing. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. The makings of a serial killer for sure. And I think that that's what happens, right? I mean, even with drug addiction, like the more, you know, you, you, the more you take the drug, you're chasing that high. And that high, that first time it lasts long, and then the second time it's, it's less, it, it lasts less and less and less. And so you need your fix faster and faster and faster. And I think that that's what, what we see here as he shortens the length of time between, you know, the, the longest length of time was between the first two victims, and then it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And like you said, in the very last situation, it was mere hours before he struck again. And I think that that's indicative of, you know, him needing to get his fix. 
this was doing something for him and he needed to get that fixed. And so, and I think he felt like, hey, I can get away with it. I haven't been caught. They have no idea who I am. And I think that that's what, what we see here. And, and he was right. Like they really didn't have like really, you know, solid, a really good, they didn't really have good leads is what I should say. The police, um, you know, as Steph's mentioned at the top, were really inundated with a lot of other different things that were happening on happening in the city. The most uh, prominent thing being the Vietnam, the protests of the Vietnam War, and you know, I think one of the documentaries that we watched even stated that they had arrested more people during that time than they had ever in the city or the district uh, prior to, and so it's just the worst time right for this to happen um and as a result we see probably a lot of things kind of go uh not investigated uh to the fullest but they did have tip lines right like they had tip lines that that you know people could call in and 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 give their anonymous tips and information to try to help the investigation uh, go forward. And but you know, and some of the leads it was easy to prove. I think this is this is probably true in most cases. Some of the leads you're easy to say, okay, like that's just not even plausible. And then others, you know, they took time to investigate, but they were able to exclude them. Um, and they uh, the police also involved later down in during the tenure of this investigation. They involved uh, the Maryland State Police. They called them in. They called in the, the FBI. They called in as many people as they could because they, they realized they needed as much. Once they realized this is likely a serial killer, they realized we need more help than what just our task force can has the capacity to do. So some of the suspects that I'm going to kind of go through with you and Steph, you know, feel free to chime in, you know, that they that they took a look at in an in-depth way were um, I'm going to start with I'm actually going to not I'm going to start with the most the one that was they were easily able to prove was not a part of this case. And that was Edward Sullivan and Tommy Simmons. Now, these are two ex-cops. And they were initially arrested for the murder of Angela Denise Barnes. And she was 14 years old at the time. Um, and they thought because of her age and the time of, the, of her murder that she was a part of, the, of this freeway phantom killing spree. However, they were able to determine later that uh, she was not a victim of the, the Freeway Phantom. And they don't really go into why they were able to determine that, but they were able to substantiate that. These two ex-cops were not involved. And although they, although they were arrested for her murder, they were able to prove that she, they were not the Freeway Phantom killers. Now, the, the one that they kind of went into a lot of depth on the documentary was the Green Vega Rapist. Now, the Green Vega Rapist was a, you know, it was alluded to be this gang that took responsibility for many of the rapes and abductions that occurred 
in the Washington, D.C. and surrounding areas. Like they were proud that they were responsible for committing rapes and abductions and assaults on women and bragged about it. And so as a result, naturally, the law enforcement took a very keen eye or they they took a very hard look at this gang because obviously they are already individuals that brag about something so horrific. And so um, when they're bringing some of these gang members in to interview them, one of the gang members just comes right out and he says that he has information about the freeway phantom murders and so of course you know the you know law enforcement is like okay like tell us what you know we we want to hear all about it now what's really interesting about this particular gang member is that he was already in prison serving a sentence um for you know for unrelated crimes but he approached them or they were interviewing him and he let them know like I have information and I am willing to share this information with you only if I can remain unidentified like as long as you don't share with anybody who I am and where you're getting this information from I will give you all the information you need so of course the police are like absolutely we will keep your identity anonymous And so he identified this man that gave him information and that told him the date and location of these crimes and and all this information that he claims he knows. And the detectives are like, okay, some of this information is only things that the perpetrator would know. And so they're, they're very interested at this point. They're like, okay, give us more, give us more. And so at this point, he's like, I can take you to the location of where the victims were 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 left and so the police were like absolutely take us and so he he you know they put him in the car and he directs them to the location now he gets them to the actual location but when he gets there and they ask him details about the crime he mixes up the details. He doesn't get the details accurate. He doesn't get the victims accurate. And it's just off. And it causes the, you know, it causes law enforcement to really kind of have some doubts about him. But at the same time, they're like, he did get us to this location. Like, he did bring us here. Right. I mean, anytime you have somebody who... And I think I think their natural suspicion is I think that's what makes them detectives, <laughs> you know, because right, because some of us would have been like, "Boy, your story keep changing, boy. You are right, lie. you right, you you just switching things up. What is happening?" Yeah. So I mean, it just it, it was good that they kind of like sought this lead out. So I mean, what what ended up happening? So well, then they're like, "Okay, we'll take us to the, another location," and and he does. He takes them to another location, but again details are off yeah and so what they were in the car heading towards or going maybe going to another location going to another location 
And remember, I told you, the whole point of him being willing to talk was he had to be anonymous. Now, what he hears on the radio as they're driving to this next location is the DJ or the, the person on the radio saying, right now there's a guy from the jail that's speaking to the to law enforcement about the freeway phantom murders and boy does that spook this guy like we don't even know his name guys like that's how like they just refer to him as the green vega rapist and when he hears this on the radio he is done he's like i am not talking anymore i don't have anything else further to say and, and so at this point, you know, the, like I said, they were already somewhat skeptical about him because the details weren't lining up. The story wasn't mathing. So they were like, okay, you're not going to be willing to talk. But they decide they're going to do just, you know, do what they do best, dig. You know, continue to pry and, and prod into his background. And what they uncover are some letters between him and other members of the gang where he admits that he made up this whole story to try to get out of jail. Like, he was already in jail, as I said, on unrelated charges. And so he was hoping that if he were to come forward and share some information, he could muster up a deal that would allow him to get out of jail early or get get him, you know, some kind of, Give you know get jail out of free. Yeah, he just wanted a jail out. You know what I was asking, jail out, a get out of jail free car. Right, that's what he wanted. And so, in these letters to other members, he openly admits that he's making up this story, and that makes sense because, as we said, the math wasn't mathing, the details weren't lining up. He knew some things, but he didn't know the crucial things, the things that only the killer and the police officers would know because as you have heard us say before on murder in the black oftentimes police officers leave key details out that only they know and only the victim only the the uh the perpetrator would know because that's how they can check verify balance that the person that's coming forward is really truly the person that's coming forward right it keeps it holds to the integrity of the case I mean, I think it's good, right? Because I think sometimes that can be frustrating if you're on the opposite end. Like, you're one of your, your sisters have died. And you can be like, man, like, what's going on? You know, like, give me some details. But they have to kind of hold it close to the cuff to ensure that once that person comes through, they got their person. You right. know what I mean? Absolutely. So they were able to rule this guy out, and they were also able to rule out the Green Vega rapist gang, right? And so the case goes cold. It goes cold like many cases uh, do when they're not properly investigated at the front end, right? And so you get this one uh, law enforcement officer who was on the case from the beginning, from Carol's case. She was... She was one of the people that knew about the case, tried to really investigate it. She was just a regular police officer at the time. But fast forward, and now she is, the, she is in a supervisory position. 
I don't remember her title, Steph. Do you? I mean, she was a sergeant. She became the the head sergeant, right, of the of the division. And so she's like wanting Mm -hmm. to put all her resources behind trying to find out what happened to these six girls. What happened? Yeah. And and as she begins to do that, Steph, what does she find out? Right. So you know, her name is Romaine Jenkins. Um, she was a former D.C. homicide, as M.D. said. She was a detective. And so in 1998, she actually was in a leadership position. Shout out to her. Go, black girl, do your thing, okay? So she knew she knew about these cases. She was a, I don't think she was ever really assigned to the case, but it was such a huge thing back It was then. very impactful for her. She really yeah, felt so, it. it. It was like coming from her community. You know, it's one of those things, like, this is my community, and I really want my community to be safe and feel safe and catch the people right Right. and i I think i just want to take just a quick pause for the cause i think that is so important um because it's so easy and i think a lot of time in our community can't speak to other communities because i'm not a part of those but in a black community i think we talk a lot Especially us educated folk. We can talk about how that's unfair, how that's not right, how that but unless you're actively engaged in changing the narrative, it's just hot air, as my brother would say. It's just hot air. It's blowing hot blowing air, hot out. smoke. You know what I'm saying? And so to see, honestly, as I was watching this and I did like a little bit further digging about Romaine, I just I admire her because she finally she worked her way up, right, into the DC uh, police department and said, you know what, I'm not going to let this fall by the wayside because it was closed. I mean, it wasn't closed, but it was cold. And she had the option to just let it continue to be cold, but she decided that she was going to reopen the case. And so a part of reopening the case is to go and pull all the cold case files from the file room that don't nobody ever go into, right, unless they're doing this. She goes in and she tries to pull it, and nothing is there. So she kind of like doubles back to some of the detectives who had it before her, and she's like, "Where's all? Where's all the information? Where did it go? Where did it go? Because now we in 1998, baby. We got some tech technology changes, okay? So right, technological advancement. Technological. There you and, go. And you know, but also just. We didn't have much to begin with, but what we had may have been something. And it's one of those things Steph had said before in previous cases that it may seem like nothing in 1970. But what seems like nothing in 1970 can be a whole lot of something in 2023. I mean, I'm just, you know, or in 1998. Or even in 1998. So, I mean, she is just, they said they had thrown it away. Not lost it. Intentionally destroyed it. Destroyed it. Because for the de- some of the detectives that were working on it prior to her, they felt like... Or not even they felt like. I think the way that she described it is they thought the case was closed. Because the only way to destroy evidence in thought. a case right. is... That it has to be, it has to, the case has to be closed. So if the case and is not think, closed, and you think, can't destroy the evidence. Right, and I think, and y'all can correct us if we're wrong, but I believe that at the time, I believe at the time that 
the statues were that after so many years and it had reached that that it is closed. Right, and I and I don't know for a fact that, that I believe, was the case, but I do know that there are statutes in every state that after so many like that that every state has a statute on how to handle evidence. Mm-hmm. And so that may have been the statute mm-hmm. in that state or district cuz DC is not a state, but in that district. In that district. I mean, because y'all I've done so many cases so it's kind of like a blur. But I believe that was the situation. So she was just, she was just distraught because she felt like, gosh, I was really trying to figure this out. But the good thing about it is that the FBI doesn't get rid of evidence. And because they had brought the FBI in on the case, she was able to recreate that case file. So although recreate the case file, like so, and and I just want to make sure we clarify that for those that are listening. Recreate the case file, creating a profile on who the killer is, the, who th- their background is. You know, obviously, FBI does a really an, ama- an amazing job of creating a profile on the type of personality, look, physical appearance, you know, educational background on a killer, right? What do they call that stuff? I can't even think of it right now. There's a whole TV show that mm, mom... CSI. CS, you know, what? Well, not that one, but yeah. They basically can create a whole profile. They, that's what it's called, profile. They can create a profile on the killer, and she was able to connect with the FBI, and they were able to do, to do that, to create that profile on this, on this killer. Now, they weren't able to... What evidence they did have, because they were included on some of the evidence. So what evidence they did have, she was able to take that, copy it, you know. And they didn't have just everything right from the beginning, like D.C. Police Department had. But they were they did have some evidence when they were brought in onto the case once they realized that it was a serial killer that had been lost. But the FBI had it. And so that was that was a good thing that, that took place. And she did all that she could from the time that she was the head detective in the homicide division. She really tried to figure out who it was. But she got to the end of her career and she was not able to solve it. So just to kind of plug her, because I think she's the best. She actually has a podcast totally dedicated to the freeway phantom killer and you can get updates on that so i just want to throw in that quick plug before we get to the ending of our case and it's called freeway phantom yes 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 so there was actually another um another guy that they suspected of so this is kind of i'm kind of rewinding us back for a second so in march 1977 a 58 year old computer tech um, named Robert Elwood Askins um, was charged with abducting and raping a 24-year-old woman inside a Washington, D.C. home. Now, as my ear or MD already stated, that you, you have these profiles that the FBI specializes in, right? And they can kind of tell you what their education background is. And they are, like, to the T, usually. <laughs> like, they have, like... They're eerily so on point. It's crazy. It's like a computer algorithm. It just be coming out right every time, right? So, they had given the D.C. The DC um, police department 
their profile at the time. And so because he had, you know, done this heinous crime and he had also stabbed a woman to death who was a prostitute. She was 26 years old and they had arrested him. And when they arrested him, he told the police that he was a woman hater. Well, what we know for sure is that the person who, the freeway phantom killer, was indeed a woman hater. Absolutely. I mean, I don't have to be an FBI profiler to be able to say that. Not even Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder Girl. Right. Just saying. We can all see that. And the other thing about him that was interesting is that people that knew him also said that he used the word tantamount in his everyday vocabulary. And tantamount is not a word that, like, just, you, you know, it's not a word that you know, people normally use. Right. I mean, it just isn't. When's the last time you said tantamount? I, as a matter of fact, today? in this today, in this conversation. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, this was like. Prior well, to that, it's probably been years. Zero. I mean, <laughs> and let's just talk about the definition. It means it's the equivalent in seriousness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and honestly, like, you know, so these are some of the reasons why he seemed good for it. I mean, this guy was crazy. Like, and I don't, I don't say that lightly. Like, he literally was institutionalized because Mm -hmm. of, in the insane asylum, because of what he did. Like, Steph said that he stabbed to death a prostitute, but he also was, uh, it, it ended up being thrown out, but he was tried for attempting to kill, not attempting, killing five people with cyanide-laced whiskey. They were five prostitutes at a brothel, and he laced whiskey with cyanide. And, you know, they put him in in, in a mental hospital. When he gets out, he strangles a 42-year-old woman to death. Right. So, I mean, this, and so, you know, at this point, like, he is, you know, he's he was put in jail, he raped he murdered this seems like the type of guy he's using words like tantamount in his everyday vocabulary right. and they he's actually hating women he's hating women and they actually found a note md in like his drawer in his desk drawer this is how they 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 he was using tantamount then in those notes that they found <laughs> in his drawer but then they found a note that he had dictated and said that he was brenda woodard's killer But when they kind of looked into that more and, like, did further investigations and actually had a search warrant, they didn't find any physical evidence that suggested that he was the Freeway Phantom Killer. And when people asked him about it later, like, because obviously, like, many news reporters, law enforcement, and even the victim's family had asked him throughout the years whether or not he was responsible or if he was a uh you know a part of these killings in any way and he denied any role in them and he you know added that the depravity of mind required to commit any of those crimes he didn't have that Uh, you didn't have that he didn't have that you didn't have that not that depravity no you only had the the, the cyanide killing people stabbing them to death but saying you hate them that's a little, but I will say this. So like, you know, so I, and he, he died in, fe- in the federal correction Institute. Uh, so in prison, um, on April 30th, 2010 at the age of 91. 
Mm. And uh, until, you know, up, up until his death, he denied any responsibility. Now, I will say this. Based on the profile of the, the victims that he killed or strangled or, you know, stabbed, they don't really line up with the victims in our case. We have younger victims here, uh, and they're not prostitutes. They are obviously just, you know, still in school. School-age kids are right out of school. Whereas his victims were, you know, between the ages of 24 and 42. That they ranged in age, and they were prostitutes at brothels. On their own, they, you know, so I, I, you know, I'm not a, again, I'm not an FBI profiler, but I, you know, and, and although there are some things that line up like his use of tantamount and, you know, his hate, his obvious hate for women, I just don't know if I could, if I could pinpoint and say, yep, it was this guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I agree. But I mean that are that that is the theories right surrounding the investigation of who could do it, who the police ended up ruling out, who they couldn't rule out necessarily. Um, but let's go ahead and get to the segues. Yeah. So I, I, you know, there's just. This case is so sad. I said to Steph, you know, this is such a sad case for me because to, you know, get to the end of the case or the documentary and to know that it is still unsolved is really just heartbreaking. I think, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm hesitant to say that the police just didn't do what they needed to do in this case at all because I do think that there were some really good police officers on this case really tried to, you know, do some of the right things. But I think there was a saying, a quote at the end of this case that I thought was really powerful. And and she said, "You most crimes are solved in the first 48 hours. And we all know, or we've all heard of that, docu- that show, the first 48. She was like, but we're approaching 48 years and we still don't have the answers and a lot of that is because of just major blunders on the part of certain individuals involved in the case i i don't want to say all of law enforcement did a bad job but there were just some really horrible things that like mistake because some mistakes you can bounce back from you can rebound from you're like oh that i dropped the ball right there but you can rebound and still make the shot and still win the game. But these blunders were so major that it really changed the entire trajectory of the case. Destroying that evidence, it's gone. And it's nothing we could ever do about it. And maybe that evidence, maybe that semen found inside of Brenda, maybe, you know, the shoes that were on these victims or the one shoe left on or had DNA on it that in the 70s, we couldn't figure out what it was, but in the 90s, in the 2000s, we can. And so it just really sucks. That's really all that you can say. I think that's my biggest takeaway is that it really just sucks. Some mistakes you can't rebound from. And I think the only way we will have an answer to what happened in this case is if somebody comes forward 
and says, yeah, either I did it or XYZ confessed. And that really is where we're left with this. And it's not beyond, you know, the imagination that that could happen. But it's far less likely, right? It's just far less likely. And these are, I loved your title for the case, The Unforgotten, because while they were The Unforgotten, that's what Murder in the Black is all about, is trying to bring attention to cases like these that maybe you've never, ever even heard about. And yet these six girls, they mattered. They mattered to their family. They mattered to their friends and their loved ones. And their story doesn't deserve to be forgotten. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I care that they were, they were murdered. It means something to me, you know, and um, just like I told my my daughter the other day, I'm like, you know, we're not guaranteed life and we act like we are. We are not guaranteed life. And so when life is stolen, I take these, any case having to do with children, I take particularly to the heart. Um, not that it doesn't mean I don't care about any other the cases that we cover about adults, but kids are so innocent. You know what I'm saying? They didn't ask to be here. And I just hate that this happened to them. And so I had never heard prior to, you know, getting on the ID channel and kind of just running through some, some shows. I had never heard of this case. Like, and this was a whole serial killer, similar to the Samuel Little serial killer that we covered back in season three. I had no idea about that man, but he is like the serial killer. He's the number one serial killer. So it's amazing, like how some of these stories are buried and forgotten and people don't talk about them. But my, my takeaway is exactly that, you know, um, we need to, we need to to talk we need to talk about these cases you know we kind of gave you guys a very even though this this episode is long i know for sure but we gave you the bare facts of this case but go and listen to the freeway phantom like watch the documentary that we watched but more importantly go listen to the documentary of the detective romaine jenkins who was on the case so that you can follow it. So in case there's any updates, in case you can share this episode or share Jenkins' episode with a family friend who will share it with somebody else, then, you know, maybe we can get this case solved. It's never too late to have something solved. Yeah, I agree with that, Steph. And, like, honestly, you never know what you never know. Like, you may have a detail that you you are like... I actually know such and such that lived and then all of a sudden that sparks a conversation and this is kind of like just off the wall not completely related but you know Kirk Franklin just found out who his biological father was and it all was a result of a conversation with a random person at a random event and that's how it happens usually that's how these things happen so I agree with Steph that you you know, if we just collectively come together, share, like, go and listen to her podcast, go and watch the documentary, and just have a conversation with your neighbor about it, your friend about it. I heard this really interesting case I never knew about. With all of us true crime crime fanatics out there, we could we could solve this case. Right, because, I mean, I, I know I told someone recently, I was like, you know, I, I love true crime, but 
what MD and I have birthed here on Murdering the Black is something I'm very proud about because it's not like I just sit here and watch it for entertainment. I'm actually, we are actually starting conversations, right? And that is so important. And so we encourage you to, you know, share if you care this episode with friends and family. And maybe if you don't care, keep sharing it anyway because (laughs) we got to figure this out for these families. They are still traumatized they are still hurting behind this case so we want to encourage you guys to continue to subscribe we have some original content um on our podcast you guys have been telling us that you enjoy it and we appreciate it i love having conversations with you guys in the comment section on different cases and girl i mean mb they still came for me for saying murphy's bro bro <laughs> murphy murphy's bro and they said and they said so homegirl <laughs> shout out to you she was like not be listening to the podcast and y'all saying my hometown wrong. I said, listen, my baby. I need you to come on the podcast. You I know need, what? That's what we're going to do. If Seth. you send in a voice note, which you can, we will feature you notes. on our podcast. Yes. So get it done. Put, put Tell us how to say it. Correct us when we're wrong. We love it. Listen, this is like raw, uncut. We try to give you just an unfiltered conversation between Steph and I and we want you to engage in the conversation with us. So join in and we can't wait to have our next conversation next week.